Welcome to the Longevity Forum podcast, a series on achieving longer, healthier, and more fulfilled lives for as many as possible. In this episode, we're thrilled to have Andy Elder, president of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, who will be speaking with Debbie Price, professor of social gerontology at the University of Manchester. We have a great discussion ahead of us, so I'll leave the rest to you, Debbie. Uh, thanks very much, Laura, and uh, welcome, everybody. Um, as Laura said, I'm Debbie. I'm a professor of social gerontology in Manchester, and I'm really delighted to be speaking today to Andy, Professor Andrew Elder. He, he's very well known in the gerontology community, uh, first geriatrician to become president of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, uh, and an expert in the teaching and assessment of clinical skills, uh, an NHS consultant since 1993. He's, he's taught or assessed bedside skills in more than 20 countries, and in 2021, he was honoured by the prestigious award of Mastership of the American College of Physicians. He's recently spent a year as a visiting professor at Stanford Medicine, writing a book about the implications of frailty for Western societies, which we'll hopefully hear a little bit more about in a moment. Uh, so welcome, Andy. Uh, thanks very much, Debbie, for the invitation and for the introduction. Great. So so I think a good place for us um, to start, uh, we're, we're going to be talking today about later life, the fourth age of frailty and dependency, uh, and the need to recognise and value that part of the life course. So I think let's start by talking about the narratives of healthy ageing on the one hand and frailty on the other hand. I wondered how you see this in current public and medical discourses and how you think we should be seeing it. Uh, do you think that in our kind of overwhelming desire to present ageing positively, we miss something important about the ageing process? Yeah, well, thanks. And I'm, I'm glad that you've actually used that phrase there, the fourth age, Debbie, in, in your question, because it is... The fourth age is defined, I think, first by Laslett that I'm most interested in. Uh, as you know, the, the third age, which is that period of our lives when we are older, typically out of, you know, beyond employment and enjoying uh, a healthy and productive older life. We've, we've become, in my view, um, over-focused and over-obsessed with that at the expense of the fourth age. And that part of, of our life course is uh, the part when we are no longer uh, healthy, we may not be uh, independent, we will therefore likely be dependent on others, and we may well have dementia. Uh, and I, I, I think that we, it, it is quite right, of course, as a society and as, as a medical community to focus on in trying to ensure that as many of the population age well and have a very, very limited period of, of their lives towards the end of their lives when they are dependent and unwell. Uh, but we've, we've perhaps done that to too much of an extreme at the moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, why why do you think that's happened? Why do you think we have so much emphasis on the period of life when, you know, we are we can do all sorts of things and and so little discussion about um, po potentially 
difficulties that people might have in the last few years, particularly of their lives? I mean, I think it's probably two things, one positive and one kind of negative. The positive one is that, you know, healthy retirement, if I can call it that, the third, let's again call it Lazlet's third age, that's a dream period for many people in their lives, isn't it? When you no longer have to go to work every day, when you've got the freedom to do what you want uh, as, as, as your personal resources permit, when you may be able to travel, when you may be able to enjoy the company of friends more, etc., etc. So it's, a, it's a, a period that many of us would aspire to. That's the positive bit. The negative bit is, I, is I think, that the fourth age is just um, associated with death. And we know that there is a reluctance of society at large to acknowledge the biological certainty that is death. Uh, the fourth age and dependency towards the end of life and before death is not a certainty, but there's a high probability that that will occur. Uh, and I think we push that out of our minds. We don't want to think about that, one, because of its proximity to death, and two, because it's not the type of aging that we want to, to, to think of for ourselves. Yeah, I, I guess as much narratives of decline as of death, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not only a fear of death, but possibly a fear of decline and loss in that period before death. What implications do you think all of that actually has in, in practicality, in real life, in medical practice, in social care practice, um, for the well-being of older people? Do you think it matters? Yes. No, I, I, I think it matters, you know, very much. And, and one one could argue that the particular situation that our own National Health Service and other health services around the world find themselves in is the fact that they've denied uh, that there may be a period of dependency and frailty, to use that word, towards the end of life. We've imagined that through better preventative methods, and particularly you know, this idea of the compression of morbidity at the end of life, that we'll have a, a, a population who age healthily and then suddenly die, yeah, um, yeah. without any period of dependency at the end of life. So, so, so we've we've maybe seen too, things too much that way. And the, the 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 not only has this now produced a situation in which we've not developed services well enough to care for an increasing number of dependent older people, but those individuals are at risk of being marginalised, of being othered, uh, of being blamed. At worse, you know, for for the for the the travails of our health services, uh, you know, there there is this word that I find quite interesting as well of of um, what some people have called failure, you know, the combination yep. of frailty and yeah. failure, uh, and for I think for for some individuals, you know, if if you don't have this dream third age type of aging, this healthy longevity, then that is a failure. In itself, yeah, and we sh- we like cannot- a moral a moral failure, really a moral or, or or personal failure. Yeah, and and we cannot look at it like that because that's not fair on the individuals who become uh, dependent, and it's you know it's not a reflection of either aging or or um, or disease actually. So I, I think in this context, um, the characterization, the formal characterization of people as frail has become quite important in clinical medicine. 
And I wondered if you could talk perhaps a little bit about that and, and tell us how you characterize frailty in clinical work and what implications you think that has for good or or or, or worse, you know, or worse. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think overall it, it is for the good that we are moving from, well, we're using the term either frailty or living with frailty more. I think that is beneficial overall. And we're also moving from what used to be quite subjective classifications of individuals uh, to, to more objective classifications. Uh, I, I mean, we used to uh, almost joke in clinical practice that if you took, um, let's say, a a, cardi- a heart surgeon to the bedside of a patient and asked them whether or not they were frail, uh, they would be more likely to say that the patient was frail than somebody like me, who's a geriatrician, uh, who's looking at a different range of people, a different range of characteristics, a different range of phenotypes uh, every day. And in, in the, the, the change in classification that's happened recently, some using very you know strict and measurement based definitions of frailty like you know grip strength doctors like measurements so there are a number of measurements yeah. people try and use but in moving from 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 loose subjective de- definitions to ones that are are more objective and i would include measurements as well as the sort of what i would call phenotypic ones like uh, the best known is rockwood's frailty uh, score, which really just has very brief thumbnail sketches of an individual plus a little uh, image. And, and that, that does help um, doctors in clinical practice um, think about uh, a, a, a patient's um, degree of frailty. And that's important because it does actually predict uh, individual people's capacity to benefit from different types of treatments and interventions and also the risks of different types of interventions that they might be uh, that might be offered to them. So it's overall it's beneficial. I feel the way we're moving with the frailty agenda. I, I guess the pandemic that you know we've all lived through and are continuing to live through um, here in you know January 2023, but it's it's brought some of this into really stark visibility because of the exponential rise of mortality from COVID with age. Um, and some people have argued that, you know, there's been a, a couple of studies, qualitative type studies about this, um, that the characterization of some people as frail using frailty scores, the kind that you might be describing, could potentially lead to their getting less than optimal treatment. So, so I guess two questions there is one, do you think that's something that's happened uh, over the last um, two to three years? And uh, if that has, what's the answer to this? Well, I, I think that what happened in the midst of COVID will be investigated in great detail in the forthcoming COVID inquiries. And there'll be lots of different opinions expressed about the specifics of what happened um, in, in, in a period of great, great uncertainty. Remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were fears that uh, hospital systems would be overwhelmed 
in a way that they actually turned out not to be. Um, sure. and I think we have to see the context of some of the suggested avenues of clinical decision making uh, in that context. But what the, the other thing I point out, Debbie, is that mortality in COVID or, you know, with, with many, many, many conditions rises. Yes, it does rise with age, but the more powerful predictors of mortality uh, or poor outcomes of any sort or um, lack of ability to benefit from a treatment are actually what you know we would call comorbidities, the presence of a d- disease or diseases uh, in association with age, um, plus frailty, uh, as measured, for example, by a Rockwood score, uh, in association with your age. And and what what I would stress, I th- I think, is what what I I said a moment ago. Then when we we're talking about frailty in general, is that the the purpose of trying to grade the degree of frailty that somebody has in the way that doctors currently have is not actually primarily to limit their access to potentially beneficial treatments. It It, it is to ensure that they're not put through treatments that they cannot benefit from. And I think it really is very important that we realize the pace that medicine has moved on at, there's more and more that you could do for an individual. But the real question in clinical practice is not what you could do, it's what you should do. Uh, And in speaking to an individual patient about all their different treatment uh, and investigation options, it's very, very important that we have a way of explaining to them their capacity to benefit. Because many people, when they realize the limited potential there is for benefit from a given treatment, will decline it. Um, uh, And I think that that's good medicine. That that is um, patient-centered medicine, uh, and it's sharing decision-making with patients uh, informed by, as I say, their capacity to benefit. I, I guess that takes us on to one of your, your special superpowers, um, Andy, about bedside skills and clinical skills. I'm wondering whether you could perhaps spend a couple of minutes um, telling us what you think the implications of this whole discussion might be for, you know, both initial curriculum training and and also for continuing professional education, because these have been very difficult conversations to have, you know, made much more difficult by the COVID environment, I'm sure. Um, uh, And, you you know, do we have a, a, a clinical workforce equipped um, with to have these sorts of conversations, or what should we do about that? Well, healthcare, I would say, we have to remember, uh, and this sounds a bit obvious, is a people project. It, 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 it is, unfortunately, it has been increasingly uh, changed, I would say, from, uh, a, tran- from a relational um, field to a you know, a transactional field in which we do things to people. Uh, and that is not good medicine. Our workforce, people who go into healthcare in general, in my experience, this isn't just doctors, nurses, others, they want to relate to the people they look after and help them make good decisions about their, their, their care. Um, I think that in med, going back to medicine and my interest in what, what you would call core bedside 
skills, then those skills, and that's the ability to you know, speak to a patient and gather information from them, to communicate with the patient and give them and explain information to them, and also uh, f- physical examination, the ability to pick up information from the patient by examining them. These are all fundamental to um, building a relationship with the patient, number one, and also getting to know them in a way that helps you make good shared uh, decisions. So we've drifted away in the UK a bit from that. We've drifted away from it even more in the USA, where, you know, as you said in the introduction, I've spent uh, a bit of time. Uh, But I think most healthcare professionals want to try and practice medicine in that way. The main barrier, though, is time. Yeah. You know, time is the most precious commodity to any clinician. But uh, the demand we on our time now is such that we don't get to do things in the way that we feel we should be doing them. Hence what you will have read about to do with what people call moral injury for healthcare yeah. professionals. Yeah, and, and I guess a recent statement about workforce planning, among other things that, that came out from all the um, uh, the Royal Colleges, I, I think you were signatory to. I, I, I'm going to um, um, just ask you to close perhaps by, by telling us a little bit about your book, Andy. Um, you, you spent some time in the States. You've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about all of this. Um, what, what can we, what have you concluded and, and what can we expect from the book? Well, th- thanks very much. I've got so much uh, else on my plate at the moment that <laughs> I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that my book will be a year away anyway. I've, I've you know, drafted it, but uh, as you'll know, there's a lot of work in getting from a, a draft, a final draft. Um, I mean, I, I've dr- driven to, to write it by my clinical experience. Uh, you know, this is my 40th winter in the National Health Service. There's no specific medal for that, but it is my 40th wow. winter. Well, congratulations. There. And, 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 you know, I think that one of the, the things that, that maybe the most powerful things that I've seen happening is that I, wanted, I went into geriatric medicine primarily to ensure that older people um, got, got a fair share of, of resources from, in healthcare. Uh, and when I first went in, it was the case that sometimes they they didn't. However, nowadays, it's the other way around. Most of my clinical work is trying to make sure that older people are not exposed to unnecessary investigations and treatment, which they cannot benefit from. And for a whole number of reasons, medicine has drifted that way. So that was one big driver for the book. And the other is the, 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 the basic fact that uh, the, the baby boomers are a big generation. Uh, in 2050, every surviving baby boomer will be over 85. That will mean, you know, from country to country, it will vary a bit, but that between two and three times as many individuals over the age of 85 as we currently have. Dependency and Laszlo's fourth age concentrates in the over 85s. We cannot, at the moment, provide adequate care, in my opinion, for people in that fourth age of their life. And we need now to start planning uh, uh, to do that. We can still push for healthy uh, longevity. Of course we should. But we have to acknowledge that we will have a growing number of people who are 
in, in the fourth age, and we need to plan to care for them better. So I'm hoping my book uh, might draw attention to that. Well, I'm sure I and, and many others in the field look forward very much to, to reading it. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Andy, and uh, uh, conversations that could go on for a very long time. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. We are very grateful to our sponsor, Juvenescence. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.